What do you do, Pete? Oh, man. I have questions. Of course you do. My first question being, why have I got to deal with this nonsense? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly podcast and a sidecast episode of the 80% Mental Podcast with me, Hugh Gilmore. Normally, I'm joined by Pete Olusuga, and today he is here with me, ready to discuss today's topics. Pete, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. I'm doing all right. Pete, it's a bit of a change of seat for you. You're normally the lead on the podcast, and I have you in the hot seat today. How are you feeling about that? It is, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie, a little bit nervous being at this end, answering the questions instead of asking them. Um, I feel like you've got the easy job today, and I've got the hard job. Well, hopefully it'll stay that way. Um, and I do intend to put put a bit of pressure on you um, because I don't like how you've treated me in the podcast um, to date. So there will be a bit of vengeance, vengeance in there. Um, oh, fantastic. How are, you feeling, how are you feeling about our guest today, Pete? Really excited. I think we've got a couple of, a couple of fantastic guests today. Um, I, I, I know Woody from, uh, from university, from Sheffield Hallam. Woody was one of my students a long, long time ago. Um, and this is the first time that I've met Ross, so I'm, I'm really excited to hear what uh, what he's got to say as well. Yeah, so without further ado, I will introduce our uh, wonderful guests. Uh, we have today with us, as Pete was saying, uh, Andrew Wood, who Andrew is a practitioner of psychologist who spends his time based at Manchester Me Uni, as well as working as the lead psych for the England B1 football team. Um, hi, Woody, how are you? Hi, Hugh. Thank you for having me on. Um, hi, Pete. Good to see you. Just a disclaimer to add in here quickly. Um, Pete was my tutor from level four to level six. So uh, anything I say, Pete is largely responsible for that. Today, so. <laughs> okay, so blame is already uh, being dished out and we haven't even started that's what I like to see. And we also have Ross Shand. And Ross is a sport and exercise psychologist, a PhD student at Leeds Beckett Uni. And Ross is the only person with an advantage today, given his experience within rugby or his strong rugby background. Ross, how are you feeling? Good, mate. Good. Um, feeling under pressure a little bit, but be enjoyable, I'm sure. Yeah, well, no pressure at all. You're the one with all the experience. So uh, if something goes wrong today, <laughs> you'll look, be the one that looks bad. <laughs> to our 80% mental guests, today's format is a little bit different. What we're doing is we're doing a haunted house episode where our guests are going to answer a question that they haven't heard. And then the other guests have to give a different answer and critique it like a devil's advocate. Now, this uh, format was created by Dan Cotterell of Rugby Coach Weekly, and I thought it was such an excellent idea. But for our listeners who are coaches, you know, it's a great idea to learn how to skin a cat in a different way. And for those of us who are listening who are sports psychs or sports psych trainees, there's a great insight as to how other people think about solving common problems uh, within sports psychology. So without further ado, I'm going to pick a guest at random and it's going to be Woody. The first question for you, Woody, is a 17-year-old is transitioning into 
the senior team in a rugby club. The senior team has a strong drinking culture. How do you, as a sports site, advise the coaches and teams about this issue? Okay, so okay, so I presume they're from like a development team and the 70-year-olds going into the first team or the senior team. Um, the first question is, or first thing I'm thinking about is, what are the legal parameters that we have to operate within? That's probably the first question, especially when it comes to drinking um, underage. Um, but I guess legally they're not allowed to drink around the club. Whatever that actual legal act is, we'd probably try and make that as clear as possible so we know what we're working within. Um, I'd also then think about who's involved in this situation. I think the psychologist has a role to play ethically um, in bringing this to the table. It hasn't really brought to the table already, but also who else is going to be influential in this process? So the head coach, um, I presume there might be a safeguarding officer perhaps at the rugby club um, and also maybe some of the senior leadership players. But most importantly, probably having that discussion with the um, younger player to begin with. So this is a club. Um, what sort of things do we have in place that helps this player transition into uh, the older group? There is a drinking culture. Factually, from what he said, I don't know whether it's a bad culture or a good culture. So that means exploring. It could be good in that it's been a part of the system for a long time. It's been adaptive. It's helpful. And it's really important to what the club stands for and it's managed really well. I guess on the flip side, it could be bad and detrimental, but it's felt like the norm and no one's challenged that so far. So that really needs exploring as well. But I guess first and foremost, it's discussions with what is the transition process like for this young player coming to a club, how they, they're 17, I'm guessing they're going to be quite impressionable. They probably know some of the older players and we have to think about their innate tendencies to wanting to fit in. So what does that mean for their development over the next two years, three, 10 years or whatever it might be? As well, I guess the parents will have to be involved in that conversation. Uh, and that's probably a conversation happening between the head coach, um, the player, and perhaps the sports psychologist as well. Um, I think it would be useful also to outline that conversation, some of the expectations about coming into this older age category around what we expect, what we can't expect. You'd also get some of their contributions in terms of what are their concerns, what they're looking forward to, and perhaps what are some of their doubts about this so-called drinking culture that they're coming into. But I guess that might be a side piece. When it comes to the actual management of this process, I'll be talking to the head coach and uh, probably the senior leadership players and what is it we should be doing to help young players transition to a squad and how is it our drinking culture may have an impact or a detrimental impact on the players coming through the system. And I think it's really important to get the players and the senior leadership team, if there is one in the club, to buy into this and take responsibility. Because I think sometimes, uh, as psychologists, you feel like you're the one who should be policing this. But I guess this is going to be a shared responsibility and understanding what impact that culture could have on the player coming through. Okay, Woody. So, you know, you're supposed to leave something for the other guys to say. Um, I think uh, that, that, that answer was incredibly comprehensive. So you've pointed out the legal status of the the youth athlete drinking, but also how the integration may be necessary or a part of uh, his transition into the team. It needs to be a successful transition into this culture, potentially. Um, but you've also questioned whether or not the, the culture actually maybe is a bad thing or a, a, an adaptive good thing. 
I suppose there's there's different sides to that, whether it's everybody goes for a pint and relaxes after a game, or maybe actually there's uh, drinking challenges and excessive drinking leading to dangerous behaviours uh, or, well, behaviours which have consequences, shall we say, if they're not dangerous. I'm going to ask then Pete and Ross, uh, what are your thoughts on Woody's answer and anything that you think he's missed out or, or maybe hasn't considered? I suppose I would inherently, if you're asking the questions of the coach and, and the, the senior players, kind of what is the, the purpose of it, is inherently you'd imagine they'd come back and say oh, it's kind of bonding or team building and it, it creates a, a strong connection between the players. So then I would potentially then look to what, are there any other activities or, or, or other things that we could do that we get the same outcome from, but it doesn't necessarily have to involve alcohol. And then I suppose I'd look to question, well, what if what if a, an individual came into this squad who doesn't drink for religious reasons or doesn't drink for health reasons, then they might not be able to, they might be allergic to it or they might just not want to. And how would we treat them? And would we treat them any different, differently to a 17-year-old? That, that's interesting because I, I normally think that people who don't drink uh, don't have enough problems. But uh, I suppose in this case, you've, you've brought up, you know, maybe maybe there might be religious reasons why somebody might drink or health reasons. Pete, what are your thoughts on, on the, this these answers? Really, really good answers. I've got a couple of things. First of all, what you mentioned that the legal issue, I can clarify that if you are, unless you're drinking with a meal, you, you, you basically you can't drink. So you can't sell to anyone who's under 18. You can't buy alcohol for somebody who's under 18. Um, you can't drink in a licensed premises if you're under 18, unless it's with a meal. So as part of that culture, if they're kind of buying drinks for this 17-year-old kid, they're actually breaking the law. So just to kind of clarify that, that's something that the club would need to address. Woody mentioned the the expectations of the athlete in, in making the transition. And if we, I guess if we go back to some of the, the literature, some of the research on transitions, the transition from being a junior athlete to a senior athlete is probably one of the most difficult career transitions in sport, maybe. Because if you think about what else is going on, they're leveling up in terms of the level of competition and practice. It's a critical time potentially in this kid's education as well. Um, kind of 17, 18, figuring out what he's what he's doing. And there's the transition from adolescence into adulthood. And, you know, I remember being 17 and there was a lot of stuff going on there that had nothing to do with sport. So, you know, before we even get to the issue of this drinking culture, there's just so much stuff that's going on that we might want to look into with this kid to help them transition from, you know, make this transition from, from junior athlete to senior athlete. So I like the fact that Woody mentioned the, the expectations of the athlete. What are they thinking? What are they expecting? And there's a lot of individual level I guess, interventions or, or, or strategies that we might use, just basic coping strategies. You know, what's going on with this kid's confidence? What's he motivated by his athletic identity? So, you know, how much does he buy into this kind of culture of, of, of him or her as a, as a rugby player? So there's all sorts of individual level stuff before we even address the, the drinking culture. Uh, I like that Ross talked about this, this idea of, okay, well, what if we've got a kid who's coming into this who doesn't drink? Uh, for whatever reason, and that made me think about. Did you did you guys watch the Last Dance documentary, the Michael Jordan documentary series? Yeah. So when he transitioned um, from college to play for the Bulls, you know he came into this culture, and 
how true or not this is uh, you know i'll leave to the people that were there but he talked about the fact that he didn't drink didn't do drugs and this was like the nba in the 80s so he was saying that basically the whole team was just like coked off their nut the whole time and then that led to him being really isolated so i think there are obviously those individual level things that we can do working with the kid but the culture of the club itself we need to address this like what he said is it a good culture is it a bad culture what impact is that having um and you know can we make sure that somebody who's coming in at a young age doesn't feel isolated from the rest of the group you know can we um implement like a buddy system or like one of the senior players to be a mentor to this kid to make sure that they're brought into the group whether or not they buy into the drinking culture or not so yeah so a, a few things that i thought when when woody and ross were talking there i suppose like i'm looking at this and, and hearing these wide ranging different views from from ross is rightly pointing out the fact that you may have to integrate somebody who doesn't integrate with that that actual side of things to the athlete transition and the stage of that within their life but then we've also got like legally what what's the right thing to do because there could be serious ramifications here for maybe the club's licensing premise the mm-hmm. coach's uh, safeguarding certificate you know it would only take a simple report to uh, a welfare officer and that would have to be followed through and due process carried out otherwise somebody could have effectively end up um, showing a lack of, of dutiful care over the individual or, or the athlete in this, this situation. What, what are takeaways here for the coaches? You know, if there wasn't a sports psych, uh, Woody, you know, what would you be your top three things after talking about this uh, that you would inform the coach of in, in a coach's language? Number one for me, which really stands out is what is the goal of his role or her role? What do they want? What is the team's goal? Is it to have younger players coming through the system for long-term player development and also have that smooth transition in so it's an attractive place for players want to come, also to develop? If that is the case, which I assume it probably will be to some degree, how is it this culture around drinking is going to be helpful or hindering or the nuances around that transition process? Um, so that's my first question. I always ask, and that's how I think about most situations. This is going to help or hinder us move forward. Number two, I'd also think about there's a silver lining to this that coaches think about the transition that players come into the club. So if this is a new thing on the team's radar, what are we doing to help players transition? What's our protocol? What's our processes? Who's involved in that as well? Is it meaningful? Is it authentic? Is it a credible process to come in? And also, you can't forget the parents if they're a younger age group as well. What's their place in that setup? So I'm thinking about the whole talent development pathway that players are coming through. And also, my final question more so for coaches going into this is, what needs to change? Does the player need to change to adapt to the culture they're coming into? Or does the system have to cater for all? Couldn't agree more with with what Woody said there when he mentioned about what's the purpose of the club. And for me, it's kind of more than purpose. It's, it's values as well. What are the values of the club? Are they about performance? Are they about development? And what are they doing? Or is, is what they're doing having a, a negative or a positive impact on moving them towards their values as a, as a club? Which I think is basically what Woody just said. I've just said it again. Okay, cool, Pete. <laughs> Thanks for reading that. Um, Ross... Ross, I'm going to give you a last say in this then. Uh, anything else to add? Not not massively. I think Woody and Pete have, have covered it really well. I suppose if 
a paper I've read, not trying to get too academic, but there's a, a paper called Coaching Generation Z uh, by Dan Gould and colleagues. And that was a really interesting read with regards what are the characteristics of this new generation. They were talking around kind of the millennial and this this Gen I, which is the, the kind of newest generation. And it, talk, it talked about them growing up slower but faster in some senses. So they're growing up slower, so they're, they're taking less responsibility, so they're moving out later. They're engaging in, in drinking later and less. Um, so it, it seems like there's almost a, a generational shift away. And I suppose tying back into that that culture piece on what's the purpose and the value of the club, if those values don't adapt and change to represent the people who are in that environment, it's going to be a dead club pretty quick, or I would imagine that because people are going to go away and think, I don't, I didn't like that, or I don't like the environment of that club. I'll go and play elsewhere where I feel represented um, and where I feel kind of accepted. Yeah, well, I suppose. I'm going to move on to the next question, but I just want to get a, a little insight from you guys uh, on the aspect of hazing because I'm, I'm surprised that didn't actually come up. And it, it's something that within university teams across all sports, you know, there's, there, there can be hazing issues. And I think it's, it's maybe more of an American feature with American colleges. And I think you only have to do a, a little bit of Googling to find out situations when this can go wrong and also horribly, horribly wrong. And I think the thing for me about hazing is that the the nature of hazing is, as I understand it from a psych perspective, is the hazing aspect makes you feel as if what you've got into is more important than it actually is because you've paid a price. It's like the sunk cost fallacy of you invested something to get into this point. Therefore, it must be worth more than it is. So it's a fake way of creating status within an organization. Is hazing something that is important or can be done healthily in your professional opinions? And I think I'll jump straight into Ross with that. What's your opinion on hazing within clubs? Oh, that's a tough one, that mate. Um, <laughs> in, inherently, it's it, it's quite inherently it's a negative thing that we we shouldn't be doing. I think what point do you start calling it hazing? Because you hear of kind of when you listen to, to talk sport and stuff, footballers talking around you, the first game you play, you've got to sing a song in front of everyone kind of before the meal after a game and you kind of go in, okay, is that, is that acceptable? Up to the point of, say, where you hear stories or have been involved in sports teams yourself and you're just kind of like, that's unacceptable. Um, and like you say, the consequences of that become much greater. I suppose what's what's the consequence of singing up, standing up and, and singing a, a song in front of kind of teammates and wives and, and friends other than maybe feeling a little bit embarrassed and, and not having the best, uh, not being able to hold a tune very well, there's probably not a lot of consequence to that, if that makes sense, versus there's much greater consequence the more extreme it becomes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, I'd actually just jog my memory. The versions I've heard of this are people standing up and singing a song while naked, and then they have to run up the bus while getting hit by uh, members of the team. And then if the song was not a good song, they had to do a butt funnel, which I'm not going to give you uh, a description of. <laughs> um, Please don't. You can... You can work that out yourselves um i'm gonna move on here uh pete then seeing as you've opened your mouth hazing <laughs> yes no and and what's the best way to do it 
No, I, I was just going to say, um, well, I mean, first of all, I play basketball and we just, we just didn't do that. You know, we just went and had a drink and had a laugh and then played. No, we didn't have a drink and then play. We played and then had a drink, but um, <laughs> mostly, but it was, it was more to Ross's point, really. He was saying about, you know, what's the danger of getting up and singing a song and, 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 you know, in front of the team. And I guess my response to that is that you never know what's going on with people. So we can think of that as something that's relatively harmless on a scale of singing to, I don't know, whatever at the other end, right? But we don't know what's going on with people. So you might be asking somebody who has an underlying anxiety disorder to stand up in front of a room of people and sing a song. We don't know what impact that's going to have. That's going to have. So personally, I, I don't think there's any need for it. I think it's silly. But then again, I'm the sort of person that just doesn't really enjoy practical jokes. So. Yeah, it was just kind of more to, 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 to say that, really. You don't really know what's going on with people. So is there any any level of, of hazing, if you want to call it that, that's really acceptable? Hmm, okay. Woody, any thoughts on hazing? So I'm five foot seven, and I'm 60 kilos at best, so I've never been in a rugby team or experienced um, hazing to its fullest. However, um, I think... This element of hazing, I guess, share some of that sort of rite of passage that you get in a lot of other sports, other professions, where we've all been through that together. You were the first new person and you had to almost humble yourself, make yourself vulnerable to everyone, therefore, that you put yourself out there and therefore you're in you're in the squad. And I think there's definitely some merits in that. But again, like with anything like this, it's it's never it's never black and white. It's just, there's nuances around it. And Pete mentioned some individual vulnerabilities that people might have. You don't know what's going on in people's lives. Um, and I think it's just really carefully finding that balance when you're having these activities. Is there a purpose by it? Do we know what effect we're having? Are we managing it properly so we can just we can we can control for those if people have got these issues going on which are underlying? Um, so I think there's some merit in hazing or minor versions of it. Um, but if balanced and moderated, I think it, it could be quite effective. Okay, so a, a different opinion then. I suppose to close up on that, my my own view is that it's all well and good until it goes wrong. And I think that's where coaches need to be mindful of like what is the unspoken culture and how do we legitimize that and document it so that we know what we're approving of and also we know when we're disapproving of things. Um, so if you're a coach that's experiencing that or that conundrum as to what to do, you know, you could lose your coaching license if you're seen to be consenting to behavior that is abusive. Uh, so it's important to document what you have said or how you have dealt with these things. And similarly, as a psych, you know, it's again important to document or at least create some form of uh, player consent among what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Okay, so moving on, Ross, I, I'm going to pick on you. So, are you are you a little bit scared? Um, should I be? I don't know. I'm am just I'm just trying to build the tension. <laughs> so it's a little bit like X Factor, but in reverse. Right. Question two, Ross. The captain has said that the team must kneel for Black Lives Matter. Some of the players disagree and refuse to. What does a psych do and, and how do they advise the club and coach? Is there a role for a psych in that discussion? What are your thoughts? Um, I would say yes, that there probably is. Um, I suppose before I get into my answer, just being really candid, I think 
having to deal with something like that would scare me quite a lot because it's such a sensitive topic. And I think for trainees and even for coaches, just acknowledging that is, is probably quite an important thing. I would I would probably start my underpinning approach and the thing that would be guiding guiding me a lot was around trying to understand uh, and develop an understanding of, of each individuals or of the group in general with regards their their thoughts and beliefs about it um, and I suppose I'd, I'd probably start off trying to understand why is it that they didn't want to kneel um, I, th- I think we can all acknowledge that the taking the knee um, and the raised fist have become kind of the synonymous signs of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and racial equality but I think at the same time we, we need to recognise that it that's they're not the only ways to so show support and, and solidarity. Um, and I think there's been plenty of examples over the last couple of weeks where for, for one reason or another, an individual wants to show support but um, doesn't feel like taking a knee is appropriate in there for them. Um, so we've, we've had it on religious grounds where people say, I, I want to support my teammates, but I will only kneel before God, so therefore I'll, I'll show my support in a different way. Um, I saw one recently. It was it was from the NBA actually. A guy called Myers Leonard plays for the Miami Heat, um, and he he said he couldn't take a knee because or he, he didn't want to because his his brother had done two tours of Afghan and the importance that that, that standing for the anthem and and he felt that that showed to the troops uh, and and I know the the kneeling that um, Colin Kaepernick started was off the back of discussions with people who had served and they felt it was still respectful. Um, so you've got a caveat that, but suppose going back to this Miles Leonard example and reading the article, he was kind of saying he was struggling to sleep, very anxious about this with regards to the repercussions that it, it would have on his teammates and, and things like that. So he, he talked about opening dialogue with, with the captain and with the coach to to try to help to try to understand their perspective but try to also help them understand his and to show that he did still support the the movement and, and he supported it in different ways. So I think that's probably the first first point I would get to with regards is there a reason? Do they still support the movement? Do they still support it? But is there a reason why they they can't kneel? Is there something that we can come up with as a group that we're all happy to do or are we happy for that individual to show his support in a different way and we've seen that in rugby guys forming a huddle or guys standing in a heart shape or guys taking the knee there's there's been lots of different ways of showing that support the second one would be the kind of next point I would maybe move on to with regards is there maybe some naivety or or a lack of understanding in the group um and I, so I reflect on my own experiences growing up in a white town in the north of England, played rugby, everyone at the club was white, and recognising that there just might be some naivety in that decision and, and how can we support that individual with regards if there are other members of the club that have maybe experienced um, experienced some of the challenges that the Black Lives Matter movement is, is trying to raise awareness and change for and can they share their stories? Or I suppose is there the opportunity to, to bring in an individual or organisation almost an educational piece? And then on that, you could maybe ask players to reflect together around how is this new, uh, how has this session impacted our thoughts and, and beliefs about that? And, and have we changed our position at all? And inherently, you start moving kind of closer towards if, if kind of 
step one's maybe not addressed the problem, if step two's maybe not addressed the problem, what are the values of that that club and that organisation? And, and that, is that individual, is his individual beliefs and values compatible or incompatible with that organisation? And, and that's, that's not a position or a decision that the psychologist makes. And none of this is just a decision um, or a position that the psychologist makes, but this is something that is a collaborative process, I would mm-hmm. say. Okay. So what I'm getting from you there, Ross, is actually this is an interesting situation that your your primary position is that there needs to be a lot of understanding, both understanding of, you know, why is the captain saying this, but also why are those not? And then... Mm-hmm getting you know a, a safe space where people can actually voice opinions understand and also you know maybe in a situation where there isn't uh, a lot of diversity that you know there is a a, a a small rural club with very little diversity and everyone's uniform in, in their experiences and upbringing maybe there is uh, something to be done there in terms of an education piece um, to help them see things differently I suppose the interesting thing that uh, that I haven't done in this scenario is I haven't stated the color of the the participants kneeling or uh, not kneeling. And again, uh, you've mentioned uh, uh, different. Sorry, I was going to say I was I was going to ask that I was going to ask is the captain black or not? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because I di- I didn't state that because I know there's been the examples you give of black 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 players in other sports not kneeling. Um, so I thought that was uh, just an interesting bit of messiness in trying to understand <laughs> the, the situation. So, uh, Ross, I'm going to move on to Pete now. Um, Pete, any uh, views on Ross's answer? And also, how would you deal with that in a different way? I, I really like what Ross said about that. I think I, I love the fact that he acknowledged the hesitance that people might feel towards this subject matter. I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, A lot of people would shy away from it. A lot of practitioners, psychs, coaches would shy away from it. The kind of obvious response is, well, let the players have a meeting and talk it out and I'm just going to stay away from it because it's uncomfortable because conversations about race and racism are uncomfortable, right? So we just just leave them. But I think think this is an opportunity uh, in this particular scenario. It's the sort of thing that, it, 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 it transcends sport, really. And I think we have to ask ourselves as psychologists, you know, what is our job in this situation? Are we about performance? Are we about well-being? Or is there an opportunity for us to make a difference in terms of, you know, personal growth and development? Um, R- Ross gave a few reasons of some of the, or a few examples, sorry, of, of reasons that players have for not, taking the knee or not kind of showing their support in that particular way and I I don't know whether it's our job to explore those reasons or not perhaps it is perhaps it isn't I think in some of the examples there have been misunderstandings of of what the movement is and what what it's about so maybe there is an opportunity there I I think I I, the the reason I asked why whether the captain was black or not was because I think that might make a difference. I'm not sure, but I think it might. Um, I think it's really important for us as psychologists, psychology practitioners, to be aware of some of the bigger picture stuff and to educate ourselves and to learn about it and to understand it. 
not just the Black Lives Matter movement itself, but all of the stuff that surrounds that for black players, for black athletes and black coaches. So we've heard black athletes speak out on racism before, but that carries a weight that just isn't the same for white athletes. I'll give you an example. So LeBron James spoke out about racism and was kind of hammered by the media because he's a black athlete. He just needs to shut up and dribble and just, you know, he shouldn't have an opinion on politics. Whereas Drew Brees, a white quarterback, said the same thing, came out and had an opinion and, you know, was was lauded for that, having an opinion on, on political uh, issues. So it just kind of illustrates the racism that black players and black athletes and black coaches have to deal with. And all of the stuff that's gone on in the last several months since the, the you know the murder of George, George Floyd the black lives matter movements like all of that stuff has an impact it had an impact on me as a practitioner you know that affected me personally um and we don't we don't acknowledge that we don't discuss that so i think the actual determining whether or not the players kneel or not that it has to come down to personal choice it has to you can't make people support a movement um, but I think it's, as Ross said, you know, it's an opportunity for the whole team. And by the whole team, I mean everyone, the coaches, the support staff, everyone to discuss this issue that's bigger than sport. You know, it's it's bigger than whether to kneel or not. It's it's about coming together, sharing stories and developing that that deeper level of understanding between everybody in the, in the club. I think it's an opportunity. It's one that would be difficult for a psychologist to go in and, and, and deal with for all those reasons that, that Ross mentioned, but I think it's important that we embrace that discomfort and go with it. It's, it's bigger than sport. Okay, cool, Pete. Um, thanks very much for your views there. So that was a really long answer. Sorry. Well, no, I mean, I think it's an important topic uh, and uh, it's also something that people will find challenging. And I think it's interesting the weight that it does carry uh, on people who choose to speak about it. Something I'm thinking on reflection on your answer and Ross's answer so far, and we've still to get a bit from Woody, is that, you know, there's part of this is that, you know, you have to play it safe, but also you have to play it well. And there's two different things, you know, one is, you know, making sure you do the right thing, but also the other thing is like, what's going a little bit further, what's maybe pushing this on to, you know, making, you know, sport and the environment a better place because I think it is a a hot button topic and people can make mistakes in this, especially in the cases of their own personal naivety or mm-hmm. their own personal uh, non-understanding of it. Um, so I think it is something that people do are nearly afraid to speak up, speak, speak about or talk about for fear of getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Woody, what are your thoughts there? Two deep answers. Yeah, well, um, I think the opportunity element Pete mentioned is really clear. I think it's an uncomfortable, but take some courage to see this as an opportunity to move forward and have those difficult conversations. And I also like the idea of Ross about having some exploration, some education around this to provoke reflection from players, not tell people what to think, but reflect upon what we're doing, what's happening more broadly. And I think that's really, really powerful. Um, a couple of my, my thoughts then, which haven't been covered already, would be the links between politics and sport, they say should never mix, but they're, in, I guess, inherently integrated, integrated together, so you can't avoid that. And people at a club, players, staff, and any team I've worked with never, ever share the same morals, beliefs, values. They all come from different places. And some think are completely on board with what they think. I think, wow, I don't agree at all with their values and beliefs. But 
they still have that common goal and shared shared approach. So I think one trap to avoid actually is to go in and tell people what to think and this is how we should act because as soon as you start almost getting on your high horse to some degree, lecturing people about what's wrong and what is right, I think you'll start polarising people because these are really deeply held beliefs and there's clearly a reason why they are not going to kneel or why they want to kneel or whatever. So that would be my first um, call to call. Um, I'd also you see the opportunity here to have a conversation called personal disclosure mutual sharing, which um, I've used quite a lot in teams I've worked with. It's an opportunity for every member of the team, players and staff, and they deliver a two minute, two or three minute speech with various questions, which can be about anything really. And what it does allows everyone a voice to to say what they truly feel in a safe environment. There's no ridicule. Um, and I guess it allows people to better understand one another. So if Ross and Peter and my team and they haven't knelt or they have knelt or whatever, I understand who they are, what their reasons are and why they've done that and vice versa. So it just allows that better understanding. And what it is, it's great because people get really nervous about delivering that two-minute speech because they're putting themselves on the line and the people respect that. And you go around the whole room. By the end of it, everyone's sort of got a piece of each other then. They really understand what to do. So I think that might be a nice little task to do in a workshop if that was um, um, on the cards. And also finally about leadership uh, with the captain. So the captain's dictated that everyone should uh, kneel. That's what um, insinuating. I'd be thinking there's an opportunity to develop this leadership skills in this captain here. So how do you go about being a leader? Are you best representing the group's values? Are you trying to be inspirational? Are you there to just tell people what to do and people listen? How do you work with the coach with that? So I think that's also another opportunity. So Woody, what you're saying is uh, some leadership education on part of the team, but also personal disclosure and understanding the differences and similarities within the group. I quite liked um, a reflection from hearing of all your answers here, the idea that, you know, as a group, we need to stand together as a team because we're here to perform as a team whilst also respecting people's differences and where they're at uh, in, in their views. I think, you know, anytime you've got conflict with any system, it's always useful to find a point where you're aiming for the same thing uh, because you, even within a coach-athlete dyad of two people, they might have different views, but actually both should be aiming for a better performance for themselves or the team and they can unite around that common goal. Okay, so I'm going to move on to our next question, which is going to be to Pete. A verbally abusive committee member constantly berates the team and staff members at trainings, and but they're friendly with the manager. So you've got this sideline committee member, mm-hmm. uh, Effin and Jeffin, at the players, the staff, whoever, but they're mates with the manager. Uh, it's causing an un- underperformance in training and attendance is dropping a bit um, and you notice the morale go down. As a psych, how do you play this? Um, my first question is what's the, what's the role of the committee member? Like what, what's their sort of position in the club? Okay. So, or, or is it, if you just made ma- it up, so there isn't one. Well, no, a committee member is generally speaking, the person who will appoint, uh, 
and be part of the panel that appoints the management and the running of the club. So they'll be entitled to have, uh, you know, access to see what's going on and interfere with things a bit and, and bring things up to the committee. So essentially you, you could look at them as if we put this in political terms, you imagine a politician going down to the local hospital, mm-hmm. shouting at everybody and telling them to do a better job. Okay. But it's it's a fictional, it's a fictional scenario. Although sure. I do know sure. of, of places where it has occurred. Yeah, I think I think we all probably do. Um I think uh, there's probably two things here. I think there's how the psychologist might bring that up with the coach, might bring up that issue with the coach, and then there's how you might deal with the actual committee member themselves. So I'll start with the first bit. I think this is, rather than there being a specific intervention here, this is just about communication and the skill of the practitioner in, in terms of, you know, conflict resolution, managing people. So I, I'd approach the manager first of all, I guess, as the psychologist. That's probably who you've got the um, the closest working relationship with. And it's it's how to bring it up. You know, well, this is the job that you've asked me to do to come in and, and get the best out of athletes and performance and you know performance enhancement, well being, whatever it is. And if I felt, you know, I felt like I feel like if I didn't raise this issue, I wouldn't be doing the job. So, you know, I just have an observation about something that I've noticed. Do you mind if I share that observation with you? And you're essentially kind of getting permission from the manager to to raise this issue that you've noticed as a psychologist. You know, you've noticed this recurring pattern. Um, it seems to be having an impact. You know, what do you think about that? How does that land with you? You're not telling them what to do you're not telling them what they should do or how to deal with it you're just saying i've made this observation you know what do you think you know how how does it how does it sit with you and and i think it's important to do that avoidance is is pretty common when it comes to um to conflict resolution well how do how do i resolve conflict well i just shy away from it and the, the reason i asked the role of the committee member was because that's especially true when there's a a power imbalance. So if this committee member's got a lot of power over the club, if they're involved in hiring and firing, the the, the common strategy would be to just, okay, well, I'm just going to leave it alone. So I think it's understandable, but I think it's important for the the psychologist to help the coach approach this. Again, in terms of addressing the actual committee member themselves, for me, it, it is, it's just communication techniques um it's it's making sure that we are valuing where the other person's coming from because it might be that what they're actually doing is trying to help they're trying to help motivate the, you know what, what's the function of the yelling and the shouting and the berating the the team and staff members it's quite possibly coming from a place of you know i'm trying to help the team here you know simple things like we should avoid that accusatory type language you're hurting the team with what you're doing you know you're coming in you're you kind of berating the team it's having this impact we can avoid that because all that leads to is just defensiveness um and we should try and be uh, i guess one technique is to use i statements you know i feel like you're maybe trying to motivate the team to do better here but i'm left frustrated when i see the impact on the team the team isn't responding to it how can we move forward so again you're kind of um, you know, it's it's a collaborative effort rather than just accusing somebody. Um, so it's all about those kind of communication skills and how you might address and how you might approach this this type of situation. Okay, so thanks very much for that, Pete. 
the I statements seem like something that could really work as well as the non-accusatory sharing the the problem with the manager and with the, the coach. That that seems like a very solid answer. So I think Ross and Woody are in the hot seat now. <laughs> um I'm gonna I'm gonna jump uh to you, Ross. What are your views on this and, and how would you deal with this? Yeah, um I suppose maybe building on on kind of Pete's answer a little bit, and and this maybe coming from a, a well intentioned place, and that individual maybe just not being um, cognizant of the impact it's having. I suppose twofold. You, you could maybe add to that twofold. One is is could you collect some kind of statements from the players with regards this is the impact it's having and and provide that back. I suppose another one um, is almost kind of obviously this is with permission and consent. It is but kind of record that interaction and, and and maybe that individual just needs the opportunity to listen back to what they're what they're saying it and how they're saying it to actually have that time to reflect and go god yeah that that's probably not really helpful like i say it can be best of, it can be the best of intentions but you don't necessarily understand the tone in which it's delivered isn't in line with the intention if that makes sense so maybe that, that might be a like a if you were to do an intervention that might be a way of of trying to raise that self-awareness with regards um, the individual and, and their communication styles. Um, also trying to think he's like, like say from a motivational perspective, he's, he's trying to do his best to maybe help, but he's hindering. But could you give that individual a role within the team? And I know that it might be he technically does as a committee member, but a more immediate role either on a weekend or, or at training with regards. Therefore he's bought in, to that team, he's part of that team, and therefore he's now kind of responsible for it. He's on the inside rather than that, rather than on the outside. So therefore, there is um, accountability for his actions as well. Then, so therefore, if if he's detracting from the team, is then detracting from himself. So that if if you were to go down more kind of intervention routes um, rather than just communication, which I, I completely agree with, Pete is is vital. Okay, so. I think I quite like that um, idea of bringing him in and getting him involved, giving him responsibility and accountability, and and that way he's playing a bigger part. Woody, what what is uh, your thinking? You've had two answers here. What's been missed out, uh, and what have they said that's wrong? Two really good answers, which sadly I I buy into as a, as a response. But if you're going to challenge me to say something different, then so there's things going on the sideline. Some are being critical of the sideline. And the players are feeling lack of, poorly motivated. They're feeling hurt by the comments, demotivated. So uh, attendance is dropping and therefore performance is dropped. Um, and what came to my mind there, listening to that, was a comment that a colleague made to me. I think it's from the late Ken Ravitz. It says, how bad an athlete do you have to be for the conditions to be perfect with playing? So what you could do is flip this. Not that, I don't think I would take this approach first, but you could completely flip this and go to the player and say, look, um, what's going on here? Is this really the reasons why you're not coming to training? You're feeling like you're hard done by because having critique from someone on the sideline, having your ego hurt to some degree, and being evaluated by others as part and parcel of um, elite sport and sport to some degree. Not to say that all of it's okay, but that is sometimes inherent. So let's think about how you could better manage your emotions. What are the things you're telling yourself? How do you behave to be able to better manage that? Because there may be three or four players in teams who don't even know there's a commotion on the side of the pitch. They're just playing. They're just getting through it. What sort of skills are they using to try and develop and overcome that and forget about it and just play on with the game? 
And how can the other players do that as well? So there might be an opportunity here to challenge a player and say, look, how are you going to train under those conditions? Because we know game situations will be similar, often maybe more pressurised, more demanding, more critical. And that's something you're going to have to get used to if you're going to be an excellent um, player in the future. So that might be just a flip side to working with this as well. Okay, so that's a different viewpoint in terms of actually not changing the world, but changing the person in the world. Quite like that. It nearly aligns with REBT a bit, um, which I know you're fond of. So we're now on to the, the last uh, question. Um, because there's three of you, I thought we'd make this a little bit exciting. And uh, <laughs> we're going to have a little bit of a challenge. There we go. Brace yourself, everyone. So <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to do rock, paper, scissors on my account. <laughs> and... <laughs> And the odd one out is going to get uh, hit with the question. So, uh, bear in mind that I can't see all of you, so I'm just going to have to take your word for it. So I'm setting myself up. You have to trust my integrity. <laughs> is it on three, Hugh, or after three? This requires clarifications. <laughs> now, already we've been talking about communication in this podcast, so I'm going to be very explicit. Um, on three. I want you to release your hands to victory. Really? I might need to edit that out and put in something better. Yeah, but I was going to say that. Didn't hands up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So hands up. Show me your hands. And Ready? on three. One, two, three. Okay. We have, it's a tie. We've got, Rock, paper, and scissors. Okay, so uh, Pete, Pete, Pete came in. Pete came in with scissors. Uh, Ross came in with uh, paper, and Woody came in with rock. So we're going to go again. Hugh, just to say, there might be a delay in the order, uh, in the visuals. I actually went for scissors. Oh, you're right. You did. You're. Uh, yeah, I've I mean, this has that. gone. This has gone really here. well so far. <laughs> right okay so what i'm going to do is that instead of doing this i, I i'm i'm just going to bully pete so pete you're up <laughs> okay sorry i thought that's what you should do but i wasn't pretty sure <laughs> is this some sort, of, some, some sort of revenge is this for, uh, for putting out the 80 percent mental trailers with you on them yes yes it is a little bit of revenge for how you treat me uh on the 80 percent mental podcast so uh are we ready question Go four for pete it. the players the players get fined for being fat after returning from off season <laughs> one of the better one of the better players refuses to pay his fine after months of the club chasing him and, and saying you know you need to pay this fine you came back fat a little bit tubby you know um and the, this is obviously a, a professional club where the players yeah. are paid, and it's a hefty enough fine. The player refuses to pay, refuses to pay, keeps delaying this, and then after a while, the club's just like, oh, forget about it. And as a result, that then sends ripples of discontent among the player's body. Um, people okay. are pissed off. 
why is he not allowed to pay pay his fines? We've all paid our fines this year. You know, this is unfair. What do you do, Pete? Oh, man. Um, I have questions. Of course you do. My first question being like, why have I got to deal with this nonsense? <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, we, we've actually seen this, I think, um, in terms of uh, some of those fines or clubs that issue fines. So was it, um, you correct me if I'm wrong, any of you guys, but was it um, Chelsea? They leaked the list of uh, fines that their players had. I think Real Madrid did the same. So it was like, uh, I don't know, like a thousand euros for not making weight at like weekly weigh-ins, I think they had. And like, you know, a thousand euros is a fairly hefty amount, but if you're on 250,000 a week, you know, it's 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 not really that big a deal. I guess the point is that it's not uncommon to have this sort of fine structure at clubs. You know, other questions, has the psychologist worked alongside the nutritionist, you know? So have the nutritionist and the coach agreed on this strategy? I guess, I just knocked my microphone over. Um, I, I guess the big thing, here is how are we as a club motivating the players to buy into professionalism because that's what this is it's, it's kind of going away for the summer and being a professional and maintaining you know health and, and and weight and you know this this team culture how are we motivating players to do that are we threatening them with punishments or are we giving them rewards for coming and making weight because we know that those two things are uh, have slightly different outcomes if if we're motivating people to do something to take action what the research says is that rewards are generally more effective than punishments but if we're trying to stop people from acting if we're trying to kind of uh, stop a behavior then actually punishments seem more effective so i don't know what this is i don't know whether making weight is like an action like following a healthy diet and nutrition plan over the summer or whether it's trying to stop people from acting like you know put down the donuts um are you, can you tell how well i'm just dodging the question here yes you're doing a terrible job thanks this is um, a horrendous horrendous answer uh, i'm gonna actually push you you know get, give a proper answer um and not sort of ask questions and hypoth hypotheticalize the, the no, entire I world don't around know. it i mean I, I i don't know it's yeah i have no idea what i would do i genuinely have no idea because it seems like a ridiculous situation to be in the, the club has essentially imposed this structure and then given in and like, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to walk that back, insist on fining him, fire him for not buying into the team uh, culture? You know, I mean, this is like, we've we've learned a lesson. This, is, this isn't working. Like, all it takes is for one player to refuse to do it. And, you know, they've kind of shown us up here. Uh, we, we literally can't stand by it. So the club's in an impossible position. What are they going to do? Insist on the fine? What, here's, here's what I'd do. I'd get the team together and I would get them to... Uh, decide themselves on an alternative punishment. Oh, cut, cut that oh bit out. <laughs> <laughs> cut that bit out. <laughs> Make sure we do cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Pete. Yeah. All joking aside, but like you've basically you've set up uh, the situation for the team to create a punishment, and yet at the start of the podcast, no, said, I know, no to Hazen. Like, come on, yeah. come on, work with me here. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, 
my, my honest, genuine answer to this is I'm not sure what I would do. Um, and I would need time, some time to think about it. Because like I say, the clubs put themselves in an impossible position. It's like a parent, isn't it? Like threatening someone with something. And then the kid just kind of stands firm and says, I'm not doing it. And I'm like, well, what are you supposed to do? So my, my genuine answer is I'm not sure what I would do. I would go and seek advice from, you know, a trusted colleague. And that's me being genuinely honest. Yeah, we just so happen to have two trusted colleagues who <laughs> had time to think about it while you waffled <laughs> through your funnel. Um, we're going to throw this over. Uh, Please do. To, <laughs> I think I think we'll go with uh, Ross on this. Ross, fines in the club, yay or nay, and what would you do? Mate, I'm I'm like Pete. I think I've got more questions than answers. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> um, all I can at the minute, I've just got the the nutritionist that I work with screaming in my head, saying finding players for weight doesn't work and just promote some healthy behaviours. Um, so I think that would be the first point. As more of a maybe a generic statement is is when we start finding players around around body weight, inherently that can lead to unhealthy dietary behaviours, and then you you potentially put yourself in an even tougher position than the position you put yourself in. I suppose more questions that, that I'd be asking is, is this kind of a players, have the players decided and agreed this or is this imposed from the club? Because then, like you say, if it's a player-decided process, then you potentially let the players decide on the process. If it's a club one, I don't know, like Pete says, you, you just put yourself in a position whereby you're just between a rock and a hard place, really, I think. I, I think... I'm not trying to get too psyche on this because this is in, inherently what we probably get criticised for, but I'd probably want to understand, like, what's that player's experiences of fines in the past? Has he been at a different club where he's, there's been a really difficult or, or detrimental experience that he's, he's had around that, if if that makes sense? Or is it just the fact of I don't see the point in having to, to pay this fine because I've come back a bit overweight? And the other one is if all your players are coming back overweight after off-season, then... <laughs> I've been looking more at the club and what they're doing than the individual player. Okay, so uh, it's interesting. I mean, there is there's a degree of missing context here, and I suppose it would be easy if we had more context, such as is this a player consented or player created process, or is this a coach imposed process? Woody, what are your thoughts? You've had two bluffers go before you and try and win themselves <laughs> out of giving it a decent answer. Um, <laughs> give it to me straight. What would you do here? Yes or no? Well, fav- one of my favourite quotes is from Chris Shambra, who says, uh, "Believe everything and nothing." When you're a sports psychologist, and I think I, I do the same here. That there's an assumption when I first read it, and I've had time to think. Luckily for Pete and Ross, so thank you for that. To challenge my assumptions that it's about professionalism, we don't know anything that's gone on over the summer with this player. We don't know what their support like, what's the system like, what's going on in their life. So in their own mind, what they've done is the right thing to do. I haven't paid the fine or they couldn't pay the fine for whatever reason. So first and foremost, you've got to find out and get a how to sit down with the player and the perhaps the head coach or the support staff, who is a key influential person in, in the team, to really get under the surface and try and understand why they haven't paid the fine. And also I think I think Pete's first point resonated, is this our job to resolve? I guess in part we can have influence to do it, and if we've got the time then it makes sense to trying to at least facilitate that process. So I'll be, be really clear with the club um, and the player and say that 
the player has a choice to not pay the fine, but then there's consequences they'll have to face with that if they're just being unprofessional and they have to live with that going forward. Um, I'll also be speaking with, with the coach or the club or the head coach, whoever sort of created this culture, I guess, is that the short-term benefits of keeping this better player happy will come at a long-term cost for the club because they can no longer get this stick out which they've created where players have fines. So in future, good luck next summer when four players come back and haven't um, made the weight. You can't use the same stick now. So what they've done is made this complete thing. They've tried to help regulate players' behaviour is now, now redundant if they don't go back on it or they don't change it or something happens. They need to take action because this could create all sorts of cracks within the squad and this can dissipate and everything that the players are held to by the club and vice versa could, is, is now in question. And it's difficult for clubs, I think, because when you've got a really good player and you haven't got, you know, the breadth and depth of players underneath, then they're not going to, we can't say, oh, we'll just replace you with someone else. They probably really need this person, hence why they've had to pander to him or her. So that's a really difficult place then. But I think I'd, as a site, I'd make it clear to them what the consequence of this would be um, for the future. You know, Woody, um, you remind me of my upbringing on a farm, chasing cows. Because really what you've just said is what you say in a farm when you're dealing with cows. If somebody's a bit shy with using a stick in the cows, you need to let them know the stick works. Because if the stick doesn't work, the cow's going to get past you. So uh, I suppose in this case, if if they have fines, they need to work. And you need to hit them hard and to the point where there's consequences upon consequences. But you're right, like the dissipation through the team, that that's... That's an amazing uh, process, but you've also highlighted the reality of what's going on between the players' ears, you know, what's happened over the summer. And I, I, I quite like that quote you used of believe everything and nothing. So uh, I suppose to close up on that, we've got a, a varied uh, degree of answers uh, as to whether or not you should even use fines and the consequences of that. And then if you do use them, use them properly, hit them hard and, and, no forgiveness and even have consequences maybe for them not being paid again a secondary consequence is uh there any thoughts on that woody to finish up there yeah just a thought on that and i gave that answer because i think you know the stick is a common approach used in lots of organizations i constantly have this battle of thinking how can we best motivate the players because it's not like a new problem is it players being engaged within their their physical support and engagement with the program it's just an ongoing thing so you're always asking yourself how can we better create an environment which um, um, intrinsically inspires people to w- want to train and it's a really difficult question so I think some of the points that both Pete Ross mentioned were really important that how can we inspire players to enjoy and want to want to um, become more motivated engage with the programme um, but also at the same time understand the benefit of short term rewards or short term punishments in that if it's going to be a useful process because I don't think it's ever one or the other you could probably think about combining both Okay, so uh, Pete, I'm going to come to you next and then Ross, I'm going to come to you next on that. So Pete, go ahead. Yeah, it was just something that you said, Hugh, about you know making sure that the stick works and kind of pick up on that a little bit and, and, and what Woody said as well is, I think if you, I mean, you know, Ross said that fines for weight management don't work, we know that. But if you are going to have some sort of policy whereby you're fining players or there's some sort of consequence you know you need to be prepared 
to go to those lengths. You need to be prepared for those consequences. So, you know, if you have a zero tolerance policy for something at your club, you need to be prepared to fire players, to fire members of staff, to let them go. You need to be prepared for that. It can't be a case of, which is exactly what this situation is really, isn't it? You know, one of the better players, well, because they're a better player, we need to we need to let them go. So if you are going to have that zero tolerance, and this goes for anything, um, that zero tolerance strategy or, or, or policy, then you need to outline exactly what that actually means and be prepared to stick to it. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Yeah, it just kind of came to me there thinking, so... We're measuring weight of players on their as they leave the club and as they come back to the club after the summer break, and we're equating a, a change in weight to a change in physical condition. I assume so. If they put some weight on, they're less fit. But I suppose my question is: is is the measurement tool correct and accurate in the sense of they might have put weight on, but it might be muscle mass. They might have been smashing the gym, and I know you can see it. We've not got necessarily you can see it visually, can't you? If someone has or not. But is the metric of weight accurate enough to to assess a change in physical condition? And and what's the amount of change that's acceptable? Because inherently, if, if they've gone from, say, doing four sessions a week and, and playing on a, a weekend, so the potentially somewhere between five and six sessions or, or four and five days even uh, of training a week to one to two then there's there's going to be a change in condition anyway that we should have probably planned for and and so what's the acceptable limit and and is that an unrealistic limit in the sense of like you've got to come back what you left it well if they're not training that much they're not gonna like you can't you can't expect like you've got to give them some time off physically and mentally um and if you're going you've got to come back in at you left at 100 kilos or you left at 80 kilos you've got to come back in at that then you creating a problem for yourself because you're creating unrealistic boundaries, I guess, in the sense of they're, they're always going to fail. And B, you're, never, you're not giving them any time off to go and enjoy themselves. And inherently, some, the things that we maybe enjoy food and drink-wise maybe aren't always the most healthy. And so mm. that's just where I've suddenly I kind of gone with my head with regards like, it comes back to Pete's point, you've, you've made a rod for your own back and you've set yourself up for failure because you're using a, a, a tool that is always going to create this problem. Just thinking about the, the measurements of weights and coming in, and I think it's interesting that what what's the point of that assessment? That's what we're asking. What do we want out of that? What is that indicator of? I guess it's readiness to return back to play after a summer of gluttony or whatever it might be. So I think it's about, I'd be, suggesting what's a better rounded way to assess that from people coming back rather than just one assessment if that is the only thing because like you say it's just one metric also things takes me back a bit, a bit i'm playing devil's advocate myself again here that can we is there a team where we can allow individual differences in their, their behavior to facilitate performance um so we don't have to have every player with the same rules and regulations. How could we be more individual, specialised to each player? This is how they perform the best. This is what they need for their programme. This is what their off-season looks like. And um, I guess the better consider the individual rather than just having a blanket rule for everyone. And we'll go back to that last dance documentary. Was it Dennis Robin? It was a bit of a um, marauding around going to Las Vegas. But the players in the team knew that that's how he best functioned, but he always performed well on the pitch. And they just had that understanding that that is how he best performed. But 
we knew that when he got on to the court that he would give it 100% and that's what he was about and I'm not saying that's going to definitely be the case here but there's some consideration of that as well so it's sort of challenging the assumption that we have to have these blanket assessments for players coming through. Pete, go ahead. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. Um, I was I was actually going to say I'm you know we've given three answers here which are well here's what I would have done in hindsight to make the situation not happen and here's what I would do in the future to change the situation but we haven't really addressed what we would actually do um, and I actually want I know this isn't the game but I just wondered what you would do me um, <clears throat> well I suppose. Uh, this is my turn to waffle, is it? It's genuinely quite a tricky one, you know, um, and we've all yeah. kind of danced around it a little bit. Yeah. So I, I've actually been in a situation where I was part of a team um, where the manager said that the players had to achieve below 14% body fat um, and they had to get skin fold calipers done every three days. And if the players weren't losing body fat or um, they were above 14%, then we would be brought before a court of their peers and asked what the hell's going on and why they're not losing weight. So as a psych, I was like, oh, dear God, oh, (laughs) dear God somebody save me <laughs> and i was only a young a, a young trainee at the time so what i had to do was i had to have enough knowledge to criticize the hell out of everything and do it in a, a good way so i went and spoke with an snc coach who wasn't involved and asked him about skinfold calipers which have a error margin of six percent either side so the, the fact that skinful calipers is an in, inaccurate way and then you're going to embarrass players to losing weight when you've got an inaccurate measurement and i don't think there's the other thing was the person doing the skinful calipers uh had the wonderful qualification of a marketing director uh and not a nutritionist or anything else so this is obviously amateur sport so i was mm-hmm. left for that scenario and then up i said look uh basically I put together a big reasoned response linked to research papers on the inaccuracies of the measurements, highlighted that the this was a perfect way to create an eating disorder because to create an eating disorder, what you do is you set a target for somebody to be. You don't give them any knowledge and you tell them there's consequences if they don't meet it. So there's three basic steps yeah. to creating an eating disorder, uh, lack of knowledge, target and consequences. And that's what he'd done. So this person had created the perfect scenario for creating an eating disorder. So then up, I was like, look, uh, here's my thoughts on it. And also don't think I can uh, stay here and uh, be a part of this. So I walked away. It was my second year um, at the time. um, And I did leave in good terms. But I think it's like I had to do my piece to highlight the the problems. I know that Mm -hmm. I had done the right thing and documented it. but I think in this regards, I would say either it's time for the coaches management management to hit the stick hard and sack the player, or it's time to reevaluate that and repay everyone's fines and rebuild a new system with the player's consent. But similarly, if you've got a player coming into that situation, what I would say is that when you sign the player's contract uh, and you buy in a new player, you'd say, look, these are our policies. You read them. If you disagree them with them, we don't sign you. Um, so taking players in on consent 
that they understand what they're getting into mm -hmm. um, if there's already established systems and ways of working. So that will be my approach. Uh, and it's it, and again, my approach would be lay out the pros and cons to the management team and say, you can choose this or you can choose that, but by God, choose one. You know, don't sit with your uh, bum on the fence. Mm. Uh, so that would be my view. Any thoughts on that, guys? Any criticisms there? No, I think like if you... You're not going to walk into the Real Madrid, are you? And just immediately and say, you know, this isn't how you do it. Uh, you need to change right now because you're just going to get kicked out of the room straight away. So I think, you know, your approach is a good one. Do the research, lay it all out. This is what I think, you know, take it or leave it. And it's it's hard for, for a psych, especially a young psych, I guess, who's trying to make a name for themselves to be prepared to walk away from something that doesn't sit right with you. Mm. And I guess that's a question that, people are going to have to ask themselves, uh, you know, that's coaches and players as well. If it doesn't sit right with you and your values, are you prepared to walk away from it or not? Um, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I don't think there is one, but it's just a, a kind of something to think about. You know, I think uh, what's interesting about that is I could walk away because I was at that point voluntary. But if you were an employed psych in a professional rugby team, you've got a mortgage, maybe you've got kids, you've mm -hmm. got family, you're paying off that lovely sofa from Argos or Ikea or wherever you got your sofa from. And it's a case of, you know, <laughs> are your values worth more than your sofa? Yeah. That's, and that's you, what I mean. You know, territory there. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, but I think for anybody involved in sport, it's a question that's going to come up time and time again. Is what I'm doing in line with what my personal values are and what am I prepared to do and not do? Um, um, yeah, we just need to be prepared to at least ask ourselves that question rather than ignoring it and pretending it's not there. So, Pete, um, I'm going to give the final shout to our two wonderful guests. I'd like to say that to the Rugby Coach Weekly uh, listeners, come and check out the 80% Mental Podcast. And to the 80% Mental Podcast listeners, I'd like to tell you, go and check out the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. Um, so uh, it, for either sets of our listeners today, you know, it's been great having you. We'd love to hear any feedback or thoughts. Or if you want to berate uh, any of our guests, especially Pete, please do so on the internet, <laughs> um, publicly shaming him. Uh, I find it's good value behavior. But uh, firstly, Ross, thank you very much for coming along. Can you tell me, Ross, how can people get in touch with you if they want to get uh, a handful or a bucket of your lovely expertise? Um, so easiest way is probably via Twitter. So my Twitter handle is just at Ross Shand. Okay, cool. Thank you very much, Ross, for coming on today and giving us your expertise. Woody, where can our listeners uh, find out more about yourself? Best way, if it's going to be a long query, then andrew.wood at mmu.ac.uk um, is typically probably the best way to contact me. Um, it's a short, snappy uh, Twitter with the least professional tag. It's at woodington89. <laughs> okay, cool. Brilliant. Well, guys, it's been wonderful having you on. Uh, Pete, for the Rugby Coach Weekly listeners, uh, where can they get a hold of you at? Um best place to get a hold of me again is on twitter so at pete olushaga it's o-l-u-s-o-g-a or at epm podcast uh 
Twitter's probably the best place. I'm on there far more than I should be. Right. So uh, lastly, then, I'd just like to thank Dan Cotterell. Dan, we have come into uh, your ears and wrecked your podcast. I hope the haunted house uh, has been left in in one piece that hopefully you will have more people come on board. I know our guests have been a little bit scared about this and we've hit them with some hard questions. So thank you for letting us come into uh, the haunted house uh, destroy the place a bit and uh, hopefully we haven't ruined your podcast yeah thanks very much dan and that's us Bye.